Hi, I'm Ron Gilbert, and welcome to the Winkly Thimbleweed Park Stand-Up Meeting Podcast. Usually we go through and talk about what we did last week and what we're going to do next week, but this week it is time for Friday questions. So we are going to go through and answer a whole bunch of questions, and uh, David Fox will have the distinction of reading all the questions for us today. David? We're going to start with Peter Broderson. Since you published the game yourself, do you feel that you are allowed to do stuff you otherwise might not have been able to do, such as swearing, cursing, introducing more adult themes, having harsh opinions on named brands, and so on? I think that there's a little bit of that, but I also kind of feel, at least in the sensibility of what we've been doing and in the spirit of it, it doesn't really feel that we're we going too far outside the bounds of a game that we would have done when we were working in the 1980s in Lucasfilm. I think part of that is because we're doing an homage to that stuff, but also it kind of goes back to that one story that I think Ron told about shithead versus tuna head, which is basically what's the point to swearing unless, you know, there's really some impact to it. And I think that, you know, good comedic humor, which is what we're trying to do, doesn't necessarily have to have those things in it. At least, um, you know, I would say we're kind of in a PG area. I don't know what you guys think, but that's kind of the way I feel, and I'm fine with that. Yeah, I think the only exception to that is probably Ransom the Clown. You know, he swears constantly. It's like every other word of what he says is swearing. And I mean, the the plan is to have that all beeped out in the text. You might do a mode where you don't beep it out. It's a lot of work to have those two different things. But, you know, I, I guess I would never I would never consider just having Ransom swear in the game, you know, without it being beeped, because I, I don't, I don't know. You don't want to do the special that. edition for forty nine ninety five. It's uncensored <laughs> with, with all of Ransom swearing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's interesting writing the script for him because sometimes I actually put the swear words in there, kind of knowing they'll be beeped, and sometimes I actually just write, you know, beep where the swear words are going to be. And I should probably go back and actually put in all the swear words just so when the actor records it he's actually doing the swearing and then we'll and then we'll beep it later so so do we get to come up with our favorite swears to have you like record as well then just just of him swearing yeah yeah sure when the <laughs> things we can add in like blank gobbler or whatever you know well you, all you need to do is just put a microphone and record me when i'm trying to track down a hard bug and i, I think you'll get lots of nice swear words we should do a reel of, of if you cut all the words and just put, string them together. <laughs> <laughs> just 10 minutes of ransom off on a swearing tirade. It should be one of the, we, somebody's asked if we were ever going to do outtakes. I don't know if people actually do that in, for game recording, but it's something that could be a special edition thing or something. There, there's, even without this, even with the swearing beeped, he's, I think, way edgier than any character that I would have seen in one of our games back then. Yeah, I think that's uh, just true. just his his attitude, his meanness. Um, well, he's an asshole. Yeah. Well, we never. Had, I don't remember having assholes in our games. Well, it's like we had we had people who were kind of fake assholes. We had people who you when you were playing the game, you'd kind of say, "Oh, I see, they're supposed to be an asshole." But ransom, you know, I really wanted ransom to truly be an asshole in the game, and so I think I think that's kind of where that edge comes from. You know, there's a couple other minor things we would have been stopped from doing, like, you know, Ray actually smokes a cigarette, and we wouldn't have been allowed to do that. That know? that still may cause us some issues. Yeah, that may cause us some issues with, with the ratings. 
um, you know, we don't we don't have to worry about ratings for you know the Steam versions and stuff, but for the Xboxes and you know other console versions, huh. you have to be rated, and you know sometimes something like smoking bumps you into this whole other rating category, which which may cause this issue. So we actually may have to remove her smoking from the console versions. I don't know, just to avoid the whole rating thing. I haven't looked into it carefully, so I don't I don't know for sure. I don't. I think you should just you know have a replacement animation that has her putting a lollipop in her mouth or something. Oh, man. Yeah, that could be even worse. Okay. <laughs> and mo- moving on. Alex asks, I'm working on a story for a point-and-click adventure, and I'm at the point where I need to decide if it's going to be in 2D or 3D. In your experience, is it harder to make a game in 2D or 3D? I think that's a pretty simple question to answer, at least certainly from the production side. 3D is way harder to do than 2D. I mean, one of the reasons we're doing 2D is is something we can afford to do in a reasonable cost. I mean, if we had been trying to make a 3D game, it would have probably cost us more than double, I would say, just because 3D is so much more time-consuming involved, certainly on the front end. And, you know, just modeling everything and making all the environments in 3D and making all the characters in 3D and trying to get, like, smooth animation. And at least certainly in my experience, 3D is way harder to do than 2D just from the artistic stand of just building the assets. I assume you guys would probably agree with that. I I think at some level, 2D and 3D can be similar, but I think it's harder to make good 3D than it is to make good 2D. Um, there's so many 3D tools that are available now that I think you can actually very quickly make a 3D adventure. But to bring it kind of up to that quality level that you could get with 2D, I think it's a lot, lot harder. Certainly to add that kind of personality to stuff in 2D is much easier to do in 2D than it is in 3D, at least once again in my experience. Yeah, it's one of the things I don't like about 3D is is that it really does, at some level, just lack the personality that 2D stuff has. Nor Treblig asks. Oh, that's, such a, that's such a weird name. Yeah. Nor Treblig. I wonder where that comes from. <laughs> <laughs> Since there wasn't enough mentioning of comics in the podcasts lately, here is a question for Gary. Where is the best place to buy your graphic novel, Bad Dreams, for having it shipped to Europe? Yeah, and I think um, it was mentioned that uh, it doesn't seem to be available on Amazon. I wasn't aware of that, but... Uh, it's readily available actually on eBay. I checked that earlier and you can get it on eBay UK or eBay, you know, domestically. So there's a bunch of copies of the individual comics, which we call floppies in the industry, actually, which are the single issues, as well as the collected graphic novel. Uh, thank you for asking that. I, I, you know, love the shameless plug and appreciate it. And you should be able to find it there. Timo asks... How would you compare graphical adventure games as a storytelling medium with novels, short stories, movies, comic books, interactive fiction, and others? Do you write the story and characters first, deriving puzzles from the story, or the other way around? Um, I think certainly the way we've worked in the past is we tend to outline the story, and then we do a lot of work on characters. But I don't think there's one part that we do first other than as sort of outlining the general idea of the story itself and then kind of filling in the puzzles and the characters as we go i mean that's certainly been my experience on this i mean you know you guys certainly can chime in and tell me what you think but that's kind of been my experience and also relative to um you know doing i'll say movies or or comic books or interactive fiction all of the stuff is you know sort of its own different animal certainly there's some similarity between these things but for the most part i think the the interactive part of it really starts to sort of 
affect how you tell the story and you know how you sort of delve into it so that's been my experience yeah i've I've always started with story at least a rough outline of the story and then build in the puzzles and then built the story up based on the puzzles and i think interactive stuff uh, if it's done right uh, it i think it's a lot harder than the other mediums because you know you're not dealing with a straight linear story you're dealing with all sorts of little branches and nodes that spawn off each other and you know different ways to get in and out of conversations and you know if if you're going to do it well you really have to think about how all that stuff flows and it just it just seems like a lot more work uh to me than than the other mediums i i agree that story comes first and if you're doing it right the puzzles need to feel like they match with the story and with the characters uh, it always bothered me when I played one and it felt like the puzzles were just tacked on and had no relevance, weren't even in the same, felt like they were from a different game. They just got plugged in to to stop you. We should try designing a game where we design all of the puzzles with absolutely no thought to any story, <laughs> just designing interesting puzzles, and then as a second pass, try to go in and lay an interesting story on top of it. Yeah. I say I once had to try to design a game where all the concept art came first from someone else. Then I came on and had to come up with a story and game around it. And that was horrendous. It was really awful. <laughs> Those sound like exercises you do in psychology class or something. It doesn't sound like a real game. You know? Yeah, it's hard. Kenny asks, what's everyone's go-to easy make crunch time food? Food that's easy to make because you're too busy working 27 hours a day to eat or sleep. I think my answer to that question is that I'm an adult now, and so I don't have crunch time food. If I want dinner, I just go make dinner. Uh, if my wife is watching its vegetables and dip, <laughs> if she's not watching its potato chips and dip. Yeah, I, I'm usually, I mean, back when we were crunching at Lucas, we didn't have a kitchen downstairs that we could pop into and just make whatever we wanted to. If I'm really, really crunching, I mean, there's there's a, an enforced break for dinner or for, for meals where we get together and just take a break and actually unwind. And that that helps. I mean, she keeps me sane. And vice versa, when she's crunching on something, then I do that with her. Yeah, that, I mean, that that is true. Working at home changes that quite a bit because I, I can just walk into the kitchen and make a real a real dinner. Whereas, you know, if we were working in an office crunching, that, that wouldn't necessarily be the case. I think Ron makes a good point relative to, you know, us not being, you know, in our 20s anymore. You know, so... Used to be we just grab burgers or pizza. Now I think we do think a little bit more about our diet. If, you know, we're, we want to make sure we live another few years. So. At least, at least, at least till the project ships. Yeah, I think that should be our goal: is to live until the project ships. <laughs> well, if Annie were out of town, I probably would grab a, a bowl of granola or something. That's real easy. Yeah, David, you're still eating stuff like granola. You know what I mean? That's <laughs> I know. Good. I know. That's, that's good for you. <laughs> <laughs> Danilo Martins asks. How much longer does it take to make sure the game script doesn't allow for dead ends, similar to most of LucasArts adventures, versus not caring too much about it, similar to Maniac Mansion or 90% of Sierra's adventures? So they're comparing Maniac Mansion to 90% of Sierra's adventures? What's the deal with that, man? <laughs> no, I think the dead ends in Maniac Mansion 
weren't so much that we didn't care about it. We just didn't even think about it. I think we knew what we were doing. Yeah, I, th I think I think when you don't care about it, I think there's more of a of a malicious intent there, where where I just don't think we even thought about the dead end stuff. Yeah, same thing for Zach. I had some dead ends in Zach, and and I think in my mind it was we sure hope you save the game. <laughs> I, I think the way we're designing this is we're looking for dead ends all the time. You know, there might be one or two cases where, I don't know, has that happened yet? Say where Rob came up with a dead end we didn't think about? Um, I don't think so. I think so far we've been pretty careful in the design stage to make sure we just didn't have any. It would be a lot easier if we didn't have to worry about that. I think there are some things that that we would we would do if, if you know, we could dead end it and the game could end. It certainly helps with things like tension you know if, if you're actually you know worried about going somewhere or doing something or worried about you know seeing another character along the road you know if we could just say you know what the game ends because this happened i think it'd be a lot easier for us from a design perspective but i don't think the game would be as interesting though vegetaman asks actually a question back to the old lucasarts days did you guys working there during the Maniac Mansion era ever run into George Lucas, Ben Burt, and the crew that comes to mind when you think of, of at Lucasfilm? And if so, did they have any involvement on the LucasArts side of things? Well, when we were working at Maniac Mansion, George Lucas would come by all the time and give us neck rubs. Yeah, I liked his neck rubs. Yeah. yeah. I think I might have mentioned that, that over the course of the time that I was at Lucasfilm, I saw Steven Spielberg more than I saw George Lucas, if you know what I mean. Well, you know, the thing that I, I found really interesting is I think George didn't pay a heck of a lot of attention to us, except when Steven Spielberg was around, because Spielberg was super interested in games, and he was always really excited to come see us. And I think whenever Spielberg came by and George came with him, George was excited, because I think Spielberg was excited. I think there was, there was also an element of, look at, look at my, my project here, look at my toy. Yeah, yeah, David, where's your fire button? Yeah, well, the the truth is, um, the only, as far as I know, the only two games that George had any input on were the first two games we did. That was for Ballblazer and for Rescue and Fractalus, and he came by for about 20 minutes for each of us and sat down and actually got to see the game, play test it, and this is probably in the around the beta stage or early beta. And for at least for Rescue, it actually gave me some really awesome feedback, which got incorporated into the game and probably makes the game really memorable, where without that would have been interesting, but not in the same way. I remember... Yeah. I, I just want to say, in the case of, of Ben Burt, I have one interaction with him during the filming of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom when they had a call for people from the company to come in and, and scream. <laughs> so I got to go in into this room and he put headphones on me and it was a darkened room. And he, he, I was basically one of the people who get shot in the stomach or a sword in the stomach or something. And I had to give these blood curdling screams and, and I actually heard my scream in the movie. Just <laughs> oh, that was me. Are, are you listed in IMDb? I don't think so. Yeah. For that. It's, it's interesting anecdotally quickly about that is that there was a guy who made the whips for Indiana Jones and Steve Purcell found out about that. And Steve was sort of into all these esoteric kinds of things. So he actually paid the guy to make him a, a bullwhip that was <clears throat> similar to Indiana Jones bullwhip. And Steve used to stand out behind the, behind the stable house and like crack the thing. One day, Apparently they were they were um, doing some foley work for Indiana Jones and they and they remembered Steve was like that and they ran down and grabbed Steve and dragged him and the whip off to like sprockets so he could record whip cracks for one of the Indiana Jones movies. I remember that. 
I remember demoing Maniac Mansion to George. He didn't really have much to say about it, but I never uh, demoed Monkey Island or anything else to him. I think after the first two games, by the time you came in for a demo, it was pretty much past the point of making changes. It was more like, we just wanted to show you what we've been doing. Um, the other thing about that is I think he pretty much trusted Steve Arnold. And so as a result, uh, I think he was busy making movies and stuff like that. So he pretty much you know, delegated that stuff. He'd check in on it, but he delegated it. I do remember one time when we were at the ranch, we had a meeting in the stable house in our side. And it was brainstorming with George. And he was trying to come up with some interesting story ideas for us. And it was pretty bad, actually. I think it, I think the game idea came out was going around picking up flowers or something. Do you remember if you guys were there? No, I don't remember that. I remember Spielberg and the Dick, but I don't remember that. that. Yeah, and the, there was a meeting with, with George and Steven Spielberg and Ron, Noah, and I before we did Indy where we talked about how far we could go and whether we could kill Indy off in the in the game and how much leeway we had to go beyond the script. It was mostly Steve saying, you know, do whatever you want, basically. In fact, he wanted us to go much further than we actually had time to go. Heart Before asks, without spoiling too much, will there be any cameos in this game from any of the characters from older point-and-click games? I'm not asking for specifics here. A simple yes or no will suffice. Yes. 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 Def asks, have any of you, while wiring up a room, etc., sneaked in a gag or in-joke for the others to find? And if so, will any of those remain in the final game? Well, for me, the answer is yes. And the answer to the second part is depends whether they get found before the game ships. <laughs> <laughs> Great, David. You know, it's like... I, I find when, you know, David checks in his code into Git. I try not to read the check-in messages because I want to I want to be able to just experience anything that's been put in there when I go play it so things are not spoiled. Yeah, I, I definitely, and when I'm doing stuff, I'm often thinking of Ron and Gary reacting to it when they play it for the first time because I don't often tell them, oh, check this scene and, and see what happens. Most of the stuff, I mean, I, I can't think of anything I put in that would be objectionable, though. So if they did find it, it's not likely they would cut it. Chape asks, being stuck finishing up this game and battling your escapist thoughts, what kind of game would you now rather work on afresh? For example, what kind of setting, atmosphere, dynamics, art style, or whatever? Uh, well, for me, I'm not feeling stuck yet. I'm focused and happy and and this might have to wait till the last month or two before i start wanting to escape um but for me i think i i would love to still do some more immersive things like virtual reality or location-based type entertainment that's still a dream for me yeah i don't think i'm sick of the game yet i know i know i will be by the time it ships but i don't think i'm sick of it yet i go to this weekly uh, prototype meeting where people show up and they just bring little prototypes they're working on and we all play them and i i i kind of wish i could bring a prototype it's like I'm not. I'm too busy to actually sit down and build something. But I kind of wish that I could. I could bring prototypes to that. For me, the the part that I hate of the project is when when the game is pretty much finished, and then you just then it seems like endlessly fixing bugs and polishing, and they just never get to the end point. And we're still so totally in the development part that that's still enjoyable for me. Christian asks, "What happens right now if you enter an undone area?" Is it, is it playable? Is there temporary art? 
Are all puzzles finished and wired up, or are you designing puzzles and text? Uh, if you enter an undone area, it's mostly concept art that's in there right now, or maybe some just wireframe art. Most of the puzzles are already wired up, though. I mean, we wired a lot of those up when we did that wireframe version of the game. So if you go into an unknown area, uh, th there will be kind of the basic puzzles there, but there probably won't be characters in dialogue uh, yet. As, as the rooms are coming in for the mansion, I'm wiring up puzzles we couldn't have done before because there was important art that had to be there for as part of for part of it. So I'm doing a lot of puzzle wiring for that part. Kind of they go hand in hand, I think. And I think there's some areas that we did earlier that we have to go back and redo or fix because of some changes to the engine. Okay, Sushi asks, as far as I know, this is the first game featuring both dialogue trees using the talk to verb and multiple playable characters. Can you comment about the possibility to talk to other playable characters and how you have handled that in your game design? Yeah, doing multiple characters in the dialogue has been an interesting challenge because we really cannot afford to have five completely different dialogues for every character that might talk to somebody. It's just, it's just we don't have the resources to tackle that problem. So it has been interesting to go through and realize, okay, well, you know, Agent Ray or Agent Ray is going to have the same dialogue with somebody and just, and just try to sprinkle it with enough differences that it doesn't sound completely the same. Right now in the game, you can't talk to other playable characters. So if you're playing, you know, Dolores, you can't talk to Ray. And that was something that I did a little bit of, and I didn't really like the way it worked. It, it felt a lot like, especially with talking to the two agents, that it became more like a help system than it did an actual dialogue. So I kind of stopped doing it. I may go back and do it, and I think, I think it probably needs a little more exploration. But right now, it's not something you can do in the game. Back when we did Last Crusade, that might be the first game that we had dialogue trees. But I don't think you could talk to anyone. Uh, I was just using a couple of puzzles with the Nazi guards, and there were switchable characters, but nowhere at the level that this is. Carlo Valenti asks, last time I asked you if you were going to answer this question, and Mr. Fox answered no, thus frying all my circuits and valves. But I'm back, threatening and powerful with brand new circuits filled with hatred against David, and I ask him, will you give me the same answer to this question? Yes. Charles asks, when you finish controller support, will you leave the controller support in the mobile edition so we can play on Android TV, Nvidia Shield, Nexus Player, Apple TV, Fire Stick, etc.? The plan is to leave the controller support in as many platforms as we can. It'll obviously be there in the PC and the Mac because people can get controllers there. And most of the mobile platforms and the TV platforms support some kind of controller. So we will we'll, we'll definitely leave it in. I don't I don't know for a fact if we're going to support Apple TV and the uh, Amazon Fire TV or not. So I, I don't know how those will go. But certainly for the straight iOS version and Android versions, we'll support controllers. Apple TV would be interesting because you can, at least with the current one, you can you know, move your hand around and theoretically move the cursor that way. Yeah, I just I just don't know what the dev kit is like for that. I don't know how much work is involved, so I don't wanna I don't wanna promise anything with the Apple TV right now. Danilo Martins asks, did you guys make any wrong calls when creating the initial infrastructure for the engine that you're still playing that you're still paying the price? Uh, I'd like to say no, that 
what we did was absolutely perfect the first time, but I don't think anyone would believe that. I mean, th- yeah, there there are there are some issues that I do I do kind of fight against in terms of how the the rendering is handled. It's like I kind of wish I could just completely pull out the entire rendering engine and start over on that. It's kind of a little bit kludgy to kind of get things up and running, and it was of course it was really exciting to see stuff that was up and running. But you know, as we're moving into more complex stuff like you know the shaders and and uh, and things like that, pulling all that out and starting over. Uh, would be good but i think that's i mean that's really the only thing that i think i would just i, I completely regret in the stuff but it's i mean it's fine to shift the game on i think if we use the engine on another game that's probably an area that i would go in and refactor tony m asks i've been listening to all the podcasts and i hear a lot about wiring up a room so i'm wondering if you can explain what that means and how you do it uh well wiring up a room first we get the art um, the art is a Photoshop file with lots and lots of layers. The artist usually doesn't know exactly how we want to arrange things, so we then I then have to go in and group different objects, different layers together into objects, move them to the right place, have to label them as .png layers, and then we use a program to extract them called Slicey. After the art is exported from Photoshop, we convert them to sprite sheets and then bring them into Wimpy, which is one of Ron's programs, and basically assign them different animation states, create objects, position them, define where the walk to position, the use position where you would be when you use that object, um, create the walk boxes, and then go into our scripting language and in a separate file and actually define what happens when you interact with each of these in code. And the wiring part is really that more of that part where, you know, what happens when you open the door, the different states, and um, just putting all the scripting code in. Um, then there's another layer on top of that with maybe cutscenes and other interactions, adding inventory objects, and that's pretty much it. We, we may do more of a, a blog post on this at some point. R2, R2, Arto? R2-D2. R2-D2. R2 asks, why are Ray and Reyes named so similarly? When Gary and I were first coming up with a story for the game, there was actually a reason that Ray and Reyes were named um, similarly like that, but that whole reason has just fallen away and no longer really relevant. But, you know, we'd already named them, and I think their names stuck, so... We may have to come up with some reason, some mention of it somewhere in the game that they have similar names. So, but uh, there, there really is no reason at this point why they're named that way. I mean, I think it's interesting that that you know, especially when you're writing something or creating something, when you like come up with a name for something, it's really once that gets ingrained in what you're doing and you've been doing it for months and months, it becomes really hard to change that name. At least for me, because I just think of that person being named that. So if you know. Ron wanted to change the name of one of those guys to Chuck tomorrow, I'd be going, uh, uh, you know, I mean, because it just feels like it makes sense to me. Unless there was some really compelling reason to change it, we probably won't. Yeah, it's really true with names. It's like once you get a name, you really get stuck to it. I think that's one of the reasons that if you're creating a project and you don't really have a name for it, is think of a think of a ridiculous code name for the project. Because then, you know, three months or six months into the project, when you come up with a final name, 
you're just replacing this ridiculous code name. You're not actually re replacing some other name that you've become attached to. Like I remember like, well, Total Annihilation, when we started that, it was called the Tank Game. It's like that was the name of the game for a long time. It was just the Tank Game. And we really resisted giving it any any kind of a real name until we knew we had a real name for it. I mean, David, when you look at like behind Jaggy Lines, was that something you were actually thinking of calling Rescue at one time? Yeah, at one time. That was Peter's idea. It was, it was a pun. And I, I thought it was hilarious, but Ratari nixed it so we couldn't use that. Okay. I had a, a name change in Zach McCracken because the guy's char character's name was Jason originally. And as part of that brainstorming meeting where we tried to funny the whole thing up a lot, that's when his name got changed to Zach, which was kind of a name we put out of the Marin County phone book. <laughs> really? So, I don't yeah. remember that. <laughs> yeah, it was. I think it was two different names. Like, oh, Zach's funny. And hey, let's try McCracken. And that's where <laughs> it came from. So it, it was... It worked. It kind of broke us out of, broke me out of thinking of him as this kind of straight-laced Jason character and became much crazier. Unusual, though. Usually, you pretty much get stuck with it. 240PZA asks. Oh, you got to pronounce that. Is it Bza? Bza? 240Bza. 240Bza. Bza. 240Bza. Is there any news on how the Kickstarter backers can upgrade the reward level? I would love to pay some extra cash for the collector's edition boxed copy. I know I've been saying this for, I guess, months now, but we actually are very, very close to having a way that people can upgrade their pledge stuff. I'm going to say within two weeks. I really do mean that. Within two weeks, we should have that working. You hear wrong. We're going to hold you to that. Or somebody's going to hold you to that. Actually, nobody can hold you to anything, Ron, but okay. <laughs> Derek Reisdorf asks, in all your years in game development, what game or position was most difficult or made you feel most out of your element? What made it difficult or unpleasant, and what did you do to persevere? I think for me, the one of the most difficult things was when I was kind of running Humongous Entertainment because I had, you know, I had designed and I had programmed and I'd worked on the first games that we did at Humongous, but the company got got really big, and I felt like at, at some level I was just a, in a management role. I wasn't really in a creative role anymore. And I really didn't like that very much. I think one of the things I learned from that whole experience is that I just like making games. And whatever I do, I just really need to have my hands in things making the game. I don't I don't want to be management. I, I had a very similar experience for that one year I was the director of operations. And I, I did it and didn't like it. And it was not creative at all. And I felt like I wasn't creating. I was just, you know, solving problems and drama stuff and, and things like that. It just wasn't fun. Yeah, I mean, I spent a lot of years in between doing uh, the gig at Lucasfilm and this, doing a lot of contract work for people. And I will say that although, you know, there's a certain level of satisfaction to working in a contract position doing, in our case, art assets. I did find that just being sort of this plug and play thing where people would come along and go, we need somebody to draw cars for like six months. Those kinds of things really started to wear on me. And I really like doing this now because it feels like, you know, creatively involved in all aspects of development and really, you know, brings me back to my roots. And I would I think I'm going to say this. I'll go on and say, I don't really ever think I want to do that again. I think I want to just stay in doing our own stuff. And I hope we're successful doing this. And um, that's all we have to do moving forward. 
Darkstorm asks, in Monkey Island, when you talk to certain key characters, you get a close-up shot of them while talking to them. However, this wasn't in LeChuck's Revenge, and you've previously said it won't be in Thumbleweed Park. Yeah, the close-ups are interesting. I know this is very contentious, because I, I did mention at some point that I didn't really like the close-ups, and a lot of people jumped on me for that, saying how much they really did like them. And, you know, I didn't like them. And the reason I didn't like them, it had nothing to do with the art. That was, I mean, the art was really good. It was, it was that I was, I felt like when we were playing the game, you're playing in this abstracted 8-bit world where the characters are very kind of chunky and interesting. And when you pop to those close-ups, it just felt like I was in a completely different game. And I think that is, you know, one of the reasons that we didn't do them for Thimbleweed Park is that, you know, we would have to really think about characters like, you know, Ray and Reyes and Dolores and Franklin and all these characters at a very, very different level. It's like, what did they look like in high-res art as opposed to the low-res stuff? And I just want to continue to think about the characters and their more low-fidelity look rather rather than what they would look like in high res. I think we um, should just zoom in on them at low resolution. I, you know, I, I thought of that, actually. I thought of that and actually did a quick little test in Photoshop, you know, of what would it look like if we zoomed in on them. The pixels are gigantic, and I don't, I don't, I don't know that it actually works, but... I mean, you did that for the Kickstarter, actually, is how you, that's kind of how you started the Kickstarter trailer. Yeah, with the, with the pull-in, yeah. But I, I will say quickly one other thing, which is relative to sort of playing a character almost like it's an avatar and i've talked about this before sort of this suspension of disbelief where you can actually imbue whatever personality you want to into these 8-bit characters it really feels like you know you're playing almost with these animated icons and it feels to me you know like i can kind of put my own personality into those things whereas if i'm seeing them in higher fidelity it kind of feels like i have some of that removed from me and i I kind of like that feeling that I had when I played those 8-bit games and I was able to sort of have that feeling and I wanted that feeling again. So certainly for me, that's, you know, an aspect of it. And I don't believe the close-ups in Monkey Island that the characters moved their mouths when they talked. And no. once you get into mouth movements and you're dealing with these larger things, you get into a lot of weird lip sync issues like with the size of characters we have right now i don't think we really need to lip sync because the mouths are are really small but if we were to do full screen stuff we would absolutely need to lip sync it just seems like a, a lot of work that might might not be necessary and our final question richard asks how do you decide that a puzzle is at the right level of difficulty to go into the game do you say three out of five play testers have to be able to complete it without hints I was replaying Monkey Island 2 yesterday, and I can't believe that many people must have been able to complete the spitting contest without some hints. Yeah, with the, with the puzzle difficulty is really hard because I don't think there is a notion of absolute puzzle difficulty just because people solve things differently. And it's not that, you know, smart people solve it quicker than dumb people. It's just people think about things differently. And so a really hard puzzle for one person is a really easy puzzle for another. So when we're doing playtesting, you know, we are kind of looking at, like you said, you know, three out of five playtesters. We are looking at trends that develop with things are hard. If one person finds a puzzle hard, 
you know, there's this instinct to immediately go change it, but I think you need to keep it and keep doing your play testing and see whether it's a more of a chronic issue with testers. We did not do a lot of play testing uh, with Monkey One or Monkey Two. We did have play testing, but it was very it was very ad hoc and it was just you know occasionally we'd bring people in. So I don't know that we you know we had enough information to make any decisions on the puzzles that that weren't just kind of gut instincts on things. I mean, we were having to add more hints or, you know, finding out where people were confused or if we just, you know, we as developers had some assumptions in mind that, you know, this would be really easy. They would just do this, this, and this and realize that no one thought of that. So you might go back and not really change the puzzle as much as, as give it more context or watch out for them not being able to solve it for a long period of time and then add some more hints to help them. Okay, I think that is all the questions for this month. We will be back next next month with uh, some more questions. Thank you, uh, David and Gary. Thank you. Okay, thanks. See you later. Goodbye. Bye. Okay, we're done. <sighs> Another four-hour editing session. <laughs> it is. It's well. It's like fifty minutes. Fifty minutes of stuff. And and I, you know, on average, I list. I have to listen to this stuff three times. If things go well, I listen to it three times. And I probably won't get to it until Sunday. So it's probably won't go up till Sunday afternoon. Hey, I, I had a question about that that cutscene bug. Uh huh. So you said that it didn't know the cutscene ended. Yeah, internally, not it's it's kind of a it's not at the level that's exposed to the scripts, but there's this weird internal thing going on where, because what happens is when a cutscene starts, it suspends the script that started the cutscene, and then it it re-enables the script when the cutscene is over, and it's it's just getting stuck and not realizing the cutscene's over, but I'm not sure why, so I'm gonna have to really go in and poke around and see what's up with that. I don't know why I don't know why it would have stopped working in, unless it never worked. Is it possible that it never worked? It's possible and it's also possible that I, I thought that I you know, I don't know. I, I have code I looked back last night when I was trying to debug it to see whether I used it before and, and there was a whole bunch of stuff around the radio station and you know things I coded a long time ago that, that did work that had code outside the cutscene. So because the way it should work is when you call the cutscene command, the line, the next line after the cutscene command should not execute until the cutscene is finished. Mm -hmm. That's the way it should work. Right. Well, here, it's not, I don't think it's executed. Yeah, it's not. I, I traced through it. The, the script gets suspended, and then it's just it just hangs waiting for the cutscene to end, even so though I, the cutscene is over. So I don't know why. It might. I can't remember if we did override before. I think we did. Yeah, you know, maybe it worked before we did the overrides, and then it kind of stopped working. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, the the thing is, I mean, that code has not changed in six months, so I suspect it never really worked. Okay. Well, I, I saw this as a problem a few weeks ago, and and just didn't have time to debug it, so I just changed the way I was doing it, and didn't put the code outside, and it worked. Okay. I figure, okay, this is something that. Yeah, I'll I'll, I'll look that. at it. I'll look at it and try to figure out what's going on. Okay. Um, and for you both, the library is 
pretty much there except for the books. Yeah, we got to figure out what we're going to do with the books. I mean, I could do the same thing we did in, um, I mean, we do the same thing we did for the bookstore and just get a, you know, a thousand titles on how many books there are. But um, yeah, it feels like we already did that though, right? Mm-hmm. We already did that. And if, you know, true, we need a thousand more books, but I wonder if there's something different we can do. We can do rather than just saying, you know, hey, give us random titles for books. I don't know if there are more books here. It's hard to tell. It might be the same number. Okay, what well, I'm not going to do that now. I feel like that's not critical for the getting this part of the game done. Yeah. So I'll, I'll come back to that. Okay. okay. All right. All right. Talk to you guys later.